0: Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Our spotlight segment this time around will turn its attention to Venezuela. Joining us to introduce our special guest is the director of the Wilson Center's Latin American Program, Cynthia Arnson. Take it away, Cindy.
1: Thanks so much, John. And I'm really delighted to welcome to today's program Michael Penfold, who is joining us from Caracas. Michael is a professor at IESA, which is Venezuela's premier public policy and business school. And he's also a global fellow of the Latin American program. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Michael, first question. Uh, The policy of the international community, uh, from the Trump administration to the Lima Group, in Latin America to the European Union has emphasized free and democratic elections as the way to resolve this multifaceted crisis in Venezuela, economic, political, humanitarian. But just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court pro-regime appointed a new national electoral council, which made it even more biased toward the ruling party. And then the Supreme Court simply replaced The leadership of the three main opposition parties after having banned one of them altogether. So, what does that portend? What does that hold for the National Assembly elections that are scheduled to take place later this year? And despite all of this international pressure, isn't the government becoming even more authoritarian?
2: Well, thank you, Cindy, for the introduction. And, And it's clear that um, Venezuela today is more distant um, from democratic transition than it was 18 months ago when uh, Juan Guaidó was declared by the National Assembly, which is basically the only democratic institution left in the country, was declared interim president. So it's not surprising. The, The reality is that the National Assembly, a constitutional mandate, is coming to an end in December this year. Under democratic circumstances, there should be free and fair elections to to elect at the the assembly, as well as, as the president. Um, but that's not happening. So the, the Supreme Court, what they just did was basically try to divide um, the opposition by taking the control of these parties away from its natural leaders, banning one of the, of the parties, which is uh, Guaidó's own party, and also making sure that by the time the new uh, National Assembly is elected under, under these very dire electoral conditions, There is a new loyal opposition emerging, and uh, basically Maduro's um, goal is to remove um, Guaido's
1: leadership. Let's talk a little bit about the United States. U.S. policy has long centered on a series of very punishing sanctions, individual sanctions, financial sanctions. sanctions sanctions on the oil sector, and then on those who trade with Venezuela, the so-called secondary sanctions, as a way of essentially forcing the regime to its knees. Um, The Venezuelan economy has been collapsing for a long time due to issues of corruption and gross mismanagement, as well as the sanctions. So can you talk a little bit about what the real results of the sanctions have been, both in political and economic terms?
2: As you just have described, I mean, Venezuela is subject to many different types of sanctions. And in fact, it's it's, today is as sanctioned as Iran, particularly with these secondary sanctions on the oil trade and the gasoline trade in Venezuela. And it's, um, it's also a country that has become internationally isolated. Just to give you an idea, eh, Venezuela today before the coronavirus uh, was less connected to Miami than Cuba is today. So it's a very isolated country. It's becoming an economy that is becoming more and more dependent on illegal trade and particularly on its um, relationship with authoritarian states such as Russia, Iran, or um, Turkey. And the effects of of these sanctions so far have been very similar to what has happened elsewhere, which is basically that it has made the regime more cohesive. Um, It has also made the regime more dependent on on military support. And it has made the regime more dependent on an illegal economy. I think that uh, U.S. goal, really, with with these sanctions at the end is, is, is to promote regime change, to to have the military break up and support a democratic transition in Venezuela, but so far it has failed to do so. That doesn't mean it has not had a tremendous effect. I think the regime understands perfectly that on the long term, its ability to sustain itself under these dire economic circumstances, is going to be very difficult. Um, However, it is uncertain to me that in the short term, the sanctions are going to have that kind of expected uh, results. And in fact, the U.S. has been very reluctant to move away from them and, and try to pursue other types of incentives that are probably more conducive to provide guarantees Um, to the the Chavista elite. Instead, it it now engaged in not only enacting sanctions, but enacting unsealed indictments, both against the ruling elite and the military
1: elite. You just mentioned the armed forces, and it's important to note that the armed forces have stood by Nicolás Maduro. Um, This has refuted all of these assumptions that the pressure would cause divisions um, and, and cause them to flip. Why has that been the case? And what, if anything, could make things change? The armed forces in Venezuela
2: has historically been a very important player, even in both democratic and authoritarian periods throughout our history. Even you know, when you go back, there's no, no political change in Venezuela has happened without their consent. So, so they're definitely a key player. Um, why do they remain loyal to, to the Chavista elite? And why have they been reluctant to promote um, the kind of transition that the U.S. And, and the Guaido political coalition in Venezuela is trying to promote? I think there's several reasons. First of all, I think they fear change in the sense that they are not going to pursue that kind of change in, in the political landscape without gaining the kind of guarantees both from the political elite and by the National Assembly, and also by the U.S. in terms of some accusations um, but that have been made against them, particularly in terms of corruption and even um, drug trading. So there's there's that big fear. Secondly, they're big winners under the current circumstances. Um, they control many different sectors, including the oil and mining sector in Venezuela. They control the import and export activities in the country, and particularly the costume sector. So they're not just uh, an army. It's an important corporate actor. And in addition to that, they have enormous presence within the administration in terms of their presence in the, in the cabinet, in terms of their presence running state-owned enterprises. And therefore, it, I don't see any kind of change in Venezuela without their support. But in order for them to be persuaded, you need to activate incentives, not only by sanctioning them or carrying a, a big stake, but but you need to start providing guarantees, you need to start providing, you know, what fiscal compensation they're gonna receive once, you know, that change happens, just like happened in, in, in Chile, for example, in the copper sector after Pinochet left power and the democratic transition started in Chile. You know, these kinds of, of agreements um, have not been on the table yet. And my perception is that until these agreements are not there, I don't think uh, that the armed forces is going to accept that kind of uh, democratic transition. In addition, I think, um, just to make my last point regarding the armed forces, is that they fear a U.S. or an internationally engineered um, political transition in Venezuela. And they have good reasons to fear it. Um, First of all, it's an army that is very pride of its own legacy and history, but it's, it's also, they have a lot of interest and, at hands and they want the institutions and their interests to, to survive. So if there's a, a political change that where we're the US or any other international factor has a big hand, they, they fear that. In addition, today, they're under surveillance by the Cuban forces and the Cuban intelligence. So there are many different reasons why this has not happened yet in Venezuela.
1: Thanks so much, Michael. And for those who would like to hear more, Michael will be participating in a Zoom webinar coming up on July 16th. Now back to you, John, thanks.
0: Thank you, Cindy. Thanks also to Michael Penfold. When we return, our experts will debate whether a meeting between President Trump and Nicolas Maduro is really as crazy as it sounds. You're listening to America's 360. Welcome back to America's 360. This is our roundtable segment. My name is John Molesky. I'd like to introduce you to our participants. You've already heard from one member of our panel, Latin American program director, Cindy Arnson. Hello, Cindy.
1: Hey, John.
0: Also joining us, Duncan Wood, director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Hey, John. Christopher Sands is director of the Wilson Center's Canada Institute.
3: Glad to be here, John.
0: Brazil Institute director, Ricardo Zuniga. Hey, John and also Argentina project director, Benjamin Gadan.
4: Hello, John. I did not realize this was a battle. I've come unprepared.
0: <laughs> in, in this corner, Benjamin Gadan. <laughs> I don't know what you're weighing in at, Benjamin, but we'll get the scale out a little later. But, but before that, let's return our attention to Venezuela. So in a recent interview, President Trump said he would be open to meeting with Nicolas Maduro, sort of, with great imprecision. Here's what the president said. I would maybe think about that Maduro would like to meet and I'm never opposed to meetings, you know, rarely opposed to meetings. Obviously the administration supports opposition leader Juan Guaido. So later via Twitter, the president tried to backtrack on his remarks saying he would only meet with Maduro to discuss, quoting again, a peaceful exit from power. Ricardo Zuniga, can you start us off? What should we make of this?
5: Well, look, I mean, I think it's very clear what Michael outlined not only one of the great humanitarian uh, disasters of the Americas, but also one of the most complex political uh, scenarios in the Americas. And while the instinct of diplomats and governments is to try to have some kind of dialogue with with this particular government, it's always been a a challenge and never more so than now, um, because we're not dealing just with political adversaries, but with a government that is uh, heavily associated not just with corruption, but with other forms of crime, uh, drug trafficking in particular, and is very closely associated with adversaries of the United States and has invited them into the region on purpose for the sake of provocation. So from the perspective of the United States, for any administration, dialogue was always going to be a, a challenge if it didn't have the proper groundwork, the proper setting, some of which Michael described uh, as part of the negotiations led by the uh, in the Oslo process. None of that exists right now, so it makes sense that the administration would not be interested in in uh, a uh, negotiation that didn't have a very clear uh, objective, particularly if, to be consistent with the policy they followed in supporting Juan Guaigal.
6: To a non-American, I think that uh, it's really remarkable how political the issue of Venezuela has become in this country. I mean, you know, looking at the United States from the outside, I okay, guess so we all kind of get why the Cuban issue has been so controversial for so long. Uh, just the number of Cuban Americans and their distribution uh, in terms of electoral college votes. Um, but when you look at the, uh, the really tiny Venezuelan population here in the United States, you begin to wonder, you know, why does it have that, uh, why, why does it become so politically sensitive in that way? And I guess that, you know, and, and there are people on this panel who are much better equipped to talk about this than me, but it's that crossover between the Venezuelan and Cuban issues, which, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are, are loath to talk about uh, in, in, in public or on talk shows like this, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's clearly there's a crossover between those issues. There's this crossover between some of the old Cold War issues about uh, the spread of communism. There's a crossover between the grievances of certain communities in this, uh, in this country. And I think that's a, it's a difficult thing for folks to understand outside of the United States. But it's a very important point to put out there when we're considering why the United States behaves in the way that it does.
0: Benjamin Gadan.
4: I I, I think that, Duncan, you're right. I mean, I think there are domestic political issues at play. I, I hope those are not behind this vicious response to the president floating the idea of dialogue. I think there's lots of reasons to be skeptical of dialogue. Ricardo, I think you're right. I mean, historically, dialogue has been used by the regime to deflate the opposition or divide the opposition to reduce pressure from the international community. There's questions of whether you can trust the U.S. president at this moment to take a legitimately hard line. For human rights and for you know the defense of democracy. That said, you know, with whom do you negotiate? You negotiate with those who have influence and power. And in Venezuela, unfortunately, the regime holds all the cards, um, controls all the territory, has the loyalty of the military, and will not be dislodged without some kind of negotiated settlement. Unless you know, I, I'm completely misreading the situation. But from what we heard from Michael Penfold earlier, it, it seems that is the
3: case. I was just going to jump in on Duncan's Pretty comment. It's interesting, Canada has about 21,000 Venezuelans who've come to Canada since 2006, which was the year that Hugo Chavez won his third election victory. And um, despite that, Canada has lined up with the United States on the issue of Venezuela in opposition to Maduro, joined the Lima group to be part of a, a regional effort to bring about change in Venezuela. Um, and is not aligned with the united states on cuba never participated in the embargo etc so it's an interesting control group if you will uh, to contrast with the us politics because some of the elements are there and yet canada is very much lockstep with the united states
6: uh yeah, mexico's participation in the lima group uh was it was one of the most active members one of the leaders of that group and uh really marked a a bit of a departure from the traditions of Mexican foreign policy when during the Peña Nieto administration they adopted a very aggressive stance towards Maduro. Under the AMLO administration in Mexico we've seen a retreat from that. Um, AMLO says he doesn't want to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries and it's become very much a domestic political issue in Mexico. Partly because of all the comparisons that have been drawn between Chavez, Maduro and AMLO Uh, and the concerns of a lot of Mexican uh, citizens that perhaps the country is going down that same path. I personally see a very big difference between Maduro, Chavez on one hand, and AMLO on the other. Um, But uh, certainly there are reasons to be concerned for the future of democracy in Mexico. And so any time that AMLO comes out and is less than aggressive with Venezuela, it raises eyebrows in that country.
1: I could just jump in. I mean, I think what's really striking about the last few days is how quickly President Trump and the Trump administration in general retracted and walked back the comments um, that Trump had said in an interview with uh, with Axios, uh, where he said that he would be open to it. And the question is, you know, as others have said, I mean, you do in a serious negotiation have to sit down across the table from the other side. But is that what this really was about? I think there was a a fear, there certainly is the appearance that Trump is very comfortable with authoritarian leaders. He's comfortable with the the, uh, the leader of North Korea or with Putin of Russia. He, he admires strongmen and he has described Juan Guaido as weak. We've heard um, from former national security advisor, John Bolton in his book, whether it's credible or not, you know, that, that, uh, um, president Trump saw Guaido as, as a figure like Beto O'Rourke, somebody who was out there making noise but didn't have um, the power to win. And after Trump made that statement that he'd be willing to sit down or would consider it, um, almost immediately there were clarifications issued by tweet from the president himself and then you know, by the White House and by the State Department that they stand by Juan Guaido um, and that policy hasn't changed. I wanted to ask, a
0: number of you have raised the the political stakes involved, and we're in election season here in the U.S. Is, is this an issue in U.S. politics that can actually move votes? Does where you stand on Venezuela, are there any parts of the electorate in any particular states where this is actually a vote mover?
1: To jump in again, I mean, I think it's a critical issue in a place like Florida, which is a swing state. Um, there's a sizable population of, of Venezuelans, but the... Um, someone mentioned it a moment ago, um, the Cuban American community and the Venezuelan American community are very closely aligned on this issue. And there have been many linkages um, that have been uh, declared in policy, the so-called troika of tyranny that includes Cuba and Venezuela and Daniel Ortega in in Nicaragua as all sort of beasts cut from the same cloth. And so I think it does have um, electoral significance in Florida above all
6: yeah sydney makes a very good point here i think it's also a very it's very important to recognize that at this point in time as we're recording this show you know the polls are suggesting that president trump is not doing well in florida and so anything that uh, would damage him further there i think has to be is probably being reconsidered by his uh, by his campaign
5: and um, there's an interesting point there which is that there are many democrats as many democrats as republicans who back uh, Guaido, and who for years have watched the erosion of democracy in Venezuela. So it doesn't—it's not a strictly—you uh, don't have a partisan issue in that you have Democrats that want to uh, you know, deeply engage with the, the with the Maduro administration and Republicans who are deeply opposed to that. The question really is one of kind of inflection. What are the, an accent, where do you put the emphasis? What do you try to do? The reality is that for the United States and for all the countries that neighbor Venezuela, and most importantly for Venezuelans themselves, what we've seen is the steady erosion of, dip, of uh, democratic institutions that make Venezuela different from what happened in Cuba. This is a country that was, <laughs> had the elements of a democracy that changed dramatically in, in, a, in a generation. And it's a challenge for all involved. Uh, and I think that's where it, it, it is absolutely an electoral issue. It is absolutely a, an issue that mobilizes people in the state of uh, Florida. But it's not a clean division between Republicans believing one and De- Democrats believing another. It's a challenge.
4: Ricardo, Ricardo, I, mean, I, I agree Good, that I you think man. you know you, you'll you'll rarely, thanks, John, I mean you'll rarely find you know the pro Chavez caucus very active in the U.S. Congress, regardless of party, but I think it's not a minor difference when it comes to tactics. You refer to it as this sort of different accent or inflection. I wonder if that kind of phrasing understates a bit the, the real differences here. And I think this gets to the crux of this question of negotiation, not necessarily a bilat between President Trump and, and Nicolas Maduro, but really the question of, is the United States under the Trump administration actively enough supporting a dialogue process in Venezuela? And there's real reasons to doubt that. And in the past, when there have been sort of moments of promising dialogue, often backed by, by Norway and other external actors, we've seen real ambiguity or even resistance on the part of the Trump administration, maybe even behind the scenes, discouraging Guaido and his cabinet from engaging fully in dialogue. So I think when it comes to tactics, there are pretty fundamental differences. And, you know, we may see that depending on how the election goes in November in the United
0: States. Chris Sands
3: it's a small issue but something i'd like to raise which has been a, a factor is that is oil and one of venezuela's great exports was oil it's a heavy kind of oil canada's oil sands produce a very similar type of oil and one of the things that's been happening is that canada has been keeping gulf coast refineries busy with canadian oil so that the jobs impact in the united states particularly at the time when oil prices are low hasn't been as keenly felt and that way canada somewhat enabled uh, this issue to, to fester a bit longer. There's no urgency there. To give you a sense, in 1991, Canada and Venezuela shipped about the same amount of oil to the United States. Uh, now, Venezuela's uh, almost dropped off the map entirely, and Canada has tripled its uh, exports to the United States. So it's a very significant uh, uptick uh, in 2019 and, and continuing.
6: That precipitous drop in, the, uh, in, in Venezuelan oil production uh, has been so stunning that recently, uh, Mexican president, uh, Andrés Manuel López of offered to sell gasoline to the Venezuelans for humanitarian purposes. And this is a country, Mexico, which has seen its own precipitous drop in oil production and struggles to produce enough gasoline or even to import enough gasoline for its own economy. So uh, that's how bad things have come. And it really is shocking when you look back you know, 10 years ago and you see how, uh, how much production was coming out of Venezuela. And still today, you see the enormous potential of that country uh, for oil production much of which unfortunately is probably gonna become a stranded asset as the world moves away from oil.
0: We're in our final minutes and before we close, I have a question for each of you to quickly weigh in on. And that is, you know, a fever has to spike right before the virus runs its course. So any chronic condition needs to reach an acute stage before there's any change. What will it take for what has become a chronic situation in Venezuela to reach that acute stage?
6: Listen, it, it, it's a really difficult and, 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 and somewhat delicate question, I guess, to talk about uh, fevers and, uh, and, uh, and infections. But what I would uh, I would say is that we, many people have speculated over the years, they would take an economic collapse to bring down the regime in Venezuela. But we've had an economic collapse that's been going on for years and years and years. Ultimately, it's about whether or not, in my opinion, whether or not uh, Maduro can maintain the confidence and the, or the faith of the military and whether he can maintain the elaborate schemes of corruption that keep those people uh, uh, fed and watered when the rest of the country is uh, is basically in starvation. Uh, the weaker the economy becomes, the less you have to do to buy support from people. And that's it, that's the situation that Venezuela is in, sadly. Today.
1: I would pretty much agree with Duncan. I mean, you know, the, every time you think that Venezuela has hit bottom, it manages somehow to sink even more. And the... Um, but this logic that you squeeze and squeeze and squeeze until somebody cries uncle um, is simply not playing out. The regime is becoming more authoritarian. It's doing what it needs to do to survive by relying on on external actors and and criminality. Um, And I don't see for, you know, any any end in sight.
3: Chris Sands? I think that uh, Canada is waiting for some sign that we could, we could make some progress there. The situation's very bleak. Canada's come up with a sustainable policy, but its focus has been on democracy and on dealing with some of the impacts of the refugees. It can sustain this policy for quite a while. I think the only thing that would give, give Canada hope is uh, a real commitment on the U.S. part to bring about change or a part, on the part of the Venezuelans to bring about a change, in which case Canada, I think, would step up. But it's a highly sustainable posture that they've taken, and I, I think, actually, uh, one that they'll continue with.
0: Benjamin Gadan how long can this go on I
4: think unfortunately it's going to require a real mobilization of the Venezuelan people the sort of uprising you need to see to dislodge a regime that is this consolidated uh, you know I think people have given up hope for that because of the extraordinary migration of Venezuelans over 5 million having left and the sense that the level of repression is such that that no one you know is courageous enough understandably to to go to the streets but I think that is what will be required
0: Ricardo, see what I did there? You gave us the first response, so I saved the last word for you.
4: Well, I sure
5: appreciate that, John. So, uh, look, I mean, the other thing is it was touched on uh, during this conversation, and I I agree with uh, the observations made about the challenges ahead, but one of the other points that bears a lot of monitoring is what's the impact, not only of those 5 million people, but other negative impacts, for example, the flourishing gold trade and and trade in, uh, in illicit minerals that, uh, that Michael referenced during his piece. You're talking about really something that's not that different from the conflict diamonds issue in, in Africa that, that uh, created so much damage and havoc in that part of the world. The damage and havoc that this is generating in Venezuela's periphery is something else that's gonna be important for us to track and to continue to monitor. And I think that will potentially help mobilize support for a, uh, an intensive effort to, to see some kind of positive change in Venezuela.
0: Thanks, Ricardo. And th- thanks to everyone. As always, uh, our panel will return in the next episode of America's 360. And we hope that you will too. We'd love to hear from you between now and then tell us how we're doing. And let us know if there are topics or issues that you'd like to see us cover in future episodes. If you'd like to do that, you can reach us via email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We'll be back with another episode of America's 360. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez-Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit WilsonCenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode
3: of America's 360.